It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. Stan Jiraiya, Nick Braccia on deck to talk about last week's UFT 256, where Figueredo and Moreno went to a draw in one of the year's most exciting bouts. And then we're going to talk about this weekend's UFC Fight Night, which Nick is extremely stacked. It might be the most stacked Fight Night card of the year, and it's available exclusively on ESPN Plus, so it's not even on the big ESPN channel. Nick, how are you, buddy? I'm doing all right. I mean... It's a little bit of a bummer that you clinched last week. Oh, uh, yeah. And it is what it is. But I thought I was going to come back strong, and I'm really excited with my picks. But you got a half a point measly, <laughs> measly victory. That's a, that's more of a Nick Braccia specialty, isn't it, to win like by half a point or by tiebreaker? You've been doing it all uh, season long. You know, and I mean, that said, the two... Listen, the the two picks that I made that I lost, you agreed with my picks there. Whereas I made, you know, I made a couple of picks where you were wrong. So I think that maybe all in all, I I picked better. But in terms of our draft, which is what's important, uh, you pulled it off. Um, although Moreno certainly made it interesting. Yeah, he did. I have to go back and watch that fight because there's been a lot of talk about how 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 well Moreno was doing was. Um, you know, the viewers were influenced by the commentators a la Machida versus uh, Shogun. Shogun won. Yep. Yeah. So I'd like to go back and watch that fight without sound. And uh, maybe we can do that in one of our, you know, in an upcoming show. Yeah, we do have a few weeks off coming up. But yeah, I, I honestly thought that Figueredo won. He definitely won three of the five rounds and probably won four of them, to be honest with you. I think the only round that Brandon Moreno clearly won in this bout was the fourth round. And then Figueredo came on really strong in that fifth round. It seemed to me like Moreno was doing well uh, kind of early in that fifth round. And then, and then you know, Figueredo just really picked it up, which says a lot about his conditioning, I think, especially considering the fact that Figueredo, uh, according to reports, was in the hospital the night before yeah. the fight after the weigh-in. So all you know, all, a lot of credit's got to go to him. And I, with Moreno, I, there was some sort of an injury. I think it happened in earlier in the bout, and I think maybe it was his foot or, or his hand or something along those lines. And you know, he was limited to an extent here as well. But I think, look, like I talked last week about how this was not going to be one of those Figueroa blowouts, right? Brandon Moreno has an excellent chin, so he's not going to get clocked that easily, or it's not likely anyway. And I talked about how Moreno has an excellent ground game and. I didn't think that Figueredo could catch him on the ground either. They didn't spend a whole lot of time on the ground in this one, but it just seemed to me like, let's say they landed the same number of strikes. Figueredo's strikes had so much more impact. It was just a different power Kind level. of, but at the same, but at the same, I mean, you can say that, and I understand how they, they landed more flush. Of the two fighters, they were in the period, in the periods of um, exchanging strikes, Figueredo was, was, visually appeared stunned to me more than Moreno did. Really? Interesting. I absolutely think so. I saw I saw Figueredo's legs wobble a little bit. I saw I saw him get stunned. Um I think it's because Moreno, you know, off was was coming at really creative angles. Um and he was landing some combos 
that sort of stopped Figueredo in his tracks. And I did think that Figueredo appeared hurt more often in the fight that Moreno did than Moreno did. But yes, Figueredo landed more strikes and they looked they just they looked more impactful. I just sometimes it's it's precision and timing and what you don't see coming. And I, I do I absolutely believe that there were more instances in that fight where I thought Figueredo was on was on the verge of being in real trouble than Moreno. I'm not saying that Figueredo didn't look like he was at all affected. It just you know the how the UFC comes out with the post pay per view kind of fight motion that slow motion clips of every fight, mm-hmm. every shot on that clip that Figueredo landed, to me screamed of like anybody else is getting knocked out. Like they were heavy. But the difference is, yes, yes, they were. But Uh the difference is, and maybe this is the better distinction to make, and I know I've used Uh this word so much on the podcast, Moreno, I didn't feel like ever lost his composure in the fight. He never took his eyes off Figueredo. He never got got frozen uh, in the moment. And I felt like there were times in in rounds four, certainly, and a little bit possibly in round two or in round three, where um, a, where a combination kind of stopped Figueredo in his tracks, I do think I, I mean I scored the fight a draw, um, and I felt but I felt like I felt like if I expected Moreno to come out hot in the fifth, and he just didn't, and it could have been you know the shoulder that he spoke about or the wrist um, that the commentators called out with that bit with that major major swelling on it, um, probably from blocking a kick. But I felt like he was, you know, I, I felt like he was potentially in an Alexander Gustafson position uh, going into the fifth. And he just did not really show up big in that fifth round. Um, you know, he didn't look defeated or anything. He just was in, he was just inactive. And it's like, I don't, you know, who knows? Who knows what was going on? And I'm so excited for the rematch. But I am a little concerned about the fact that. If Figueredo, and they said this, his sickness had nothing to do with the weight cut. Um, I've heard different sure takes on that. the tra- on the translation. No, I've heard different takes on the translation. Right. Um, I got the sense that his post fight meal or his post weigh in meal didn't sit with him, and it was some kind of food. It was some kind of food poisoning. Interesting. Um, okay. that it was. It was. It sounded like it was stomach problems. You know, possibly like diarrhea or vomiting. I don't know, but it didn't. It didn't sound like it had to do with the weight cut. Maybe they were spinning it that way. I, but what's the what's the value of that? So I would say the value is that uh, a lot of guys can assume that after making weight, Figueredo, you know, is still having trouble. He missed weight in uh, two fights ago uh, in his first UFC title shot, right? And then you know he he like talks about how you know weight cuts have been fine they've been easy uh, since then and i think they see the value of like not letting their opponents know that there's a weakness there not well he he didn't look he didn't, in the fourth and fifth in the fifth round in particular dude did not look like a guy compromised by a bad weight cut no, but man, he didn't look like a guy compromised by a bad by a bad stomach bug either don't you think well i don't know if that if you get that stuff and you get it out of your system like it's just it's i don't know I'm not, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a fight doctor. Not yet. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I agree with you that Figueredo looked phenomenal late. I expected that Moreno was going to, 
uh, if he's not finished here, that he was going to slowly start taking rounds off as the fight progresses. So I expected uh, Figueredo to win the first two rounds, Moreno uh, to look good in that third round, and that round could possibly go either way. And then fourth and fifth could be Moreno's is what I was kind of envisioning this fight going like. And it wasn't far off that, but that fifth round, Figueredo really put his foot on the pedal. And like you said, Moreno didn't. And it's probably to, nope. uh, I, I would imagine, uh, look, the damage he took, Nick, like I've I've had extremely hard sparring sessions with before with heavy hitters where I took like, you know, multiple heavy shots and you stutter a bit afterward for a little bit, right? You you aren't quite getting your words out in the same way. And if you see that post-fight interview with Moreno, including the press conference, he was not talking straight. Like he was concussed whether or not he went out. Like he took some incredibly heavy shots and he looked like it and he spoke like it. Whereas oh, I thought me, he sounded Moreno, great in the interview afterwards. But okay. uh, rewatch it, Nick. Re- rewatch it and then watch okay. one of his pre-fight interviews. Granted, he just went through a hard fight, but I just feel like the head damage. You see that sometimes after a guy's been knocked out, and then if they still interview him, where you know he speaks a certain way, like like he's not getting his words out quite the same as he usually is. Um, where you know you see that often enough in old age uh, w- with uh, w- with people, but not so much with younger people t- unless they've taken this kind of head damage. And yeah, man, he he looked like he was roughed up. He spoke like he was roughed up. Whereas Figueroa honestly looked about the same in that fifth round as he did in the first when it comes to wearing damage. Yeah. And I know that there's like a genetic component to that in itself. Uh, I just feel like the level of damage was so much yeah. in favor of of uh, Figueroa. But I know it sounds like you disagree. Well. Well, also, just to be clear, if Moreno had been – Moreno got the fifth round on Junichiro uh, Camillo's scorecard, which yes. doesn't make any sense to me. Nope. So if he had gotten it on the other two st- scorecards, we're still looking at a split draw. I'm sorry, a majority draw. I'm looking at I'm looking at the cards right now. Like, so Moreno, even if, even if he had come out like gangbusters and won that round clearly, he's still yeah. not winning the fight. But here's what I think is the takeaway from that, from that score on that one judge's card – it's more like had that judge scored that round correctly, Figueroa would have won anyway. Yep. Yes. So so yeah. So uh, look, uh, the bottom line is that 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 third round point deduction for Figueroa was really what made the difference here. Was really the difference between Figueroa walking away with a title defense and a draw, right? Um, and like, what do you think of that? Uh, uh, like, it was one strike. There wasn't really a warning for the low blows, right? It was one strike, and obviously. Moreno had a lot of trouble with that man. He was dry heaving, and he's not one to exaggerate. Here's the yes, that's the thing. Like what I mean, the com- the commentators, if we can take them at face value, say that the the letter of the law in that ruling is that it's the referee's discretion based on impact to the fight. So right. if you you know the glancing blows were after 45 seconds, the guys are like, yeah, 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 I'm good, I'm good. Then it's like, all right, we'll let that go. But maybe if there's if those compound and there's two or three of them. You take a point away because that's the guy's fighting irresponsibly, even if he's not cheating on purpose. This had this clearly had major impact. Moreno was not faking it. It took you know three minutes to recover, and there was a question for us watching it. We're like, oh, this is an exciting fight. Moreno's a live dog in this, and we were all like, is he going to be able to go on? Like it, that you know, that's a soul stealing kick, um, and you could. You, we've all been there. We've all caught it. Uh, one way or the other, and know what that, know what one tenth of that feels like. None of us have ever been kicked in the cup by you know this little psycho. So, <laughs> um, I think it was fair. I think that's the referee referee's discretion based on impact to the fight. 
It was pretty. Fa- yeah. I mean, it was not. It was. It wasn't a graze either. It was. You're throwing. You know, you're throwing heat. It was you got to. You know, yeah. you got to be. Yeah, you got to be responsible with it. So, I don't think Moreno was going for an Oscar there. I think he was really hurt. Um, yeah, I'm very much there with you. Uh, I, I think. Uh, look, Jason Herzog to me is the best referee in the sport. Like I'm, I'm a big believer in him. Uh, I've been a fan of him, his since he was just kind of a local referee on the New York, New Jersey scene. He refed uh, a fight of one of my friends uh, who was fighting a Gracie, and uh, I, I forget the Gracie's name. It was John Salgado, uh, who was a former training partner of mine that fought him. I think it was in Strike Force, and um, John Salgado got caught in an armbar, and he literally like. Uh, like the Gracie was on his back with Salgado up on his feet, caught in the armbar and Salgado, uh, my training partner at the time just stomped the head of that Gracie. And you know, there wasn't like serious damage, but that's clearly illegal, right? With a downed opponent. So what Herzog did was instead of calling it a disqualification, since you know, the uh, Gracie wasn't hurt to the point of being, uh, uh, to the point of being out of the fight. And he, you know, was in a deep armbar, So it's like a weird situation. What he did was he deducted two points for my training partner. And I thought that was like very fair, right? Like the, like, cl- like you don't necessarily need to end this fight since the, uh, since the hurt opponent is not really complaining, isn't really hurt that badly, but he did have an armbar, So you're kind of securing the win for him. Um, and I thought that was a great way to call it. And I, I think he's just a phenomenal, consistent referee. I think he made the right call in this bout as well. Moreno was not only dry heaving from that shot, not only like this, will it affect him potentially for the rest of the fight, right? Where maybe he would have come on much stronger uh, in that third, fourth and fifth round overall, had he not been hurt that badly to the junk. And also on top of the fact that Moreno's kind of energy level was depleted from that shot, Figueredo got to rest, and Figueredo's a guy who can use that rest, right? He's a guy that's kind of known for maybe slowing down a little bit as a fight progresses. Maybe Figueredo wouldn't have had such a great fifth round had he not uh, had that break in the third round. Who knows? Um, so I am there with Herzog, and also the fact that moments before that low blow, Moreno was eye-poked. I think that, on top of everything else, just kind of combines for a good call here. And it's it's unfortunate that it led to a draw, but I think the fact that we get to see these guys, we... Uh, run it back very shortly I think is exciting stuff and and look it was a, a candidate for fight of the year I still think that Joanna versus um, Wang Zhe Li is going to take that spot I think, yeah I, I think agree a fight was just a non-stop firefight and recency bias is the only reason why this would uh, win the fight of the year uh, kind of stakes on anyone else's card uh, but a really phenomenal fight and maybe if uh, Joanna hadn't had that crazy fight with the champ maybe these two would have been a shoe in for a fight of the year really was a very exciting bout and here's the thing about Moreno he was taking heavy 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 shots the entire time and Figueredo was doing a great job of pressing forward consistently right he wasn't just standing there and waiting for an opportunity uh, like he did with Benavidez's times he was actually pushing forward and bringing it to Moreno knowing that he was the more athletic more physical fighter and he was able to do that for the majority of that five-round bout. Like I said, um, I think there's a good chance that Figueredo deserved four of those five rounds, and maybe he deserved the decision despite that one-point deduction, but a phenomenal bout, a really good showing by Moreno. I had uh, I had trouble really kind of being sure about Figueredo having a clear-cut edge here, even though I gave him the edge and I picked him. Um, I had trouble being super confident because I wasn't sure about his ability to go strong late in the rounds, and he did exactly that. He looked good in that fifth round, man. So uh, the champ looked good here against a really worthy contender, and I think Brandon Moreno will not be underestimated anymore in the near future. Yeah, and I'm excited. You know, I'm excited for the rematch. 
You know, I'd like to see. I think it's potentially. We'll see. We'll see how much Figueroa was compromised by that illness, but I think it's a winnable fight for Moreno. I do. Yeah. Yeah, I'm there. Um, with you. Also, it was Igor Gracie, by the way. That you're, you're, the, thank you, it, thank you, buddy. Th- thank you for looking that up. And he defeated Salgado in the second round by a triangle. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right to me. Um, so he ended up submitting him anyhow. Uh, Nikolai, we have a, a great co-main event between Charles Oliveira and Tony Ferguson. It wasn't a particularly competitive fight, right? Charles Oliveira dominated Ferguson, but I think a lot of questions were answered. Questions about Oliveira's conditioning. Granted, he didn't get much resistance, but he looked good in that third round. Questions about Tony Ferguson at this point in his career. Was he past his prime against Justin Gaethje where he got walloped or... Is it just that Justin Gaethje was that much of a better fighter? And I think we got our answer here. Tony Ferguson is not the man he used to be. And on top of that, this is this was a pretty bad style matchup. Tony Ferguson is a former wrestler right at the college level. He hasn't had very good takedown defense in a while. And Charles Oliveira out-wrestled him completely. Um, I, I didn't have much doubt that Oliveira could dominate him on the ground like Kevin Lee did years ago. But I wasn't sure that he could take him down quite as easily as he did. And he did, man. Just at will. Tony had really no resistance. That uh, armbar at the end of the first round actually uh, recommended a prop bet on Charles Oliveira by first round submission. Because I thought that if he was uh, going to finish, it was going to be in the first round by submission here. And that, man, that came so close to being a reality with Tony Ferguson's arms being popped at the very least, possibly broken. I feel like he wouldn't admit it if it was uh, before he went on to get dominated in rounds two and three as well what were your thoughts on this one man not what i expected um yeah it's one of those things where there were a lot of unknowns and last week when we discussed it i i remarked that Oliveira's recent uh run hasn't had a lot of impressive scalps on it and that he is a guy who when you know, when challenged with elite competition, seems to find find a way to lose or has a weak point exploited. But he seems so much physically stronger than he did a couple of years ago um, and and really, really confident that I, you know, I can't wait to see who he fights next. He's he's just really a guy who has evolved. Um, I mean, we've, we always saw flashes of brilliance and he has all those those great submissions, but he he hasn't fared well against uh, the cream of the crop. And I mean, maybe everyone's always the, maybe the Tony Ferguson brand has, uh, you know, had us being uh, maybe overestimating him a little bit, but he's still a guy that dropped Gagey. And, yep. but, but I certainly don't have, any, here's what I don't worry about. What would have happened if Tony and Khabib fought? I feel pretty confident. I know what oh, would have man. happened if Tony and Khabib Absolutely. fought. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, let's see what's let's see what's next for Oliveira. There's all sorts of options. Ferguson's also a guy who, you know, and we, we there are guys like this where their their strength ends up being their weakness, like a like a Diego Sanchez, um, where their psychology and their toughness is at at another level, right? I mean, anybody would have tapped to that armbar, but Tony, like Diego, like some other people, recently he he got rid of his entire coaching staff. He's now the head coach at his gym. Um, you know who's he? Who's he listening yeah. to? Who's he? Who's he his training own head with? coach? Right. Yeah. He's, right. Yeah. So he's he just looked he just looked listless, overpowered, and overmatched. And he talked about oh, it's different without a crowd because these two losses both came you know without a crowd. And it's like all right, but if your if your mental capacity and 
your psychology and, and sort of you know crazy el cuckooiness has always been uh, a strength against incredible physical adversity with guys you know guys standing across from you trying to murder you like you can't get over that there's no one in the seats <laughs> it's, you know what i mean like it seems yeah. it seems like that's an easier adjustment than like you know trying to deal with some of the people that he's uh that he's defeated or some of the bad positions he's been in so it could just be you know, Khabib had said it um, after the Gagey fight. He said, and he didn't say this rudely. He said, Tony Ferguson's done. Tony Ferguson's over. He's like, I don't care who you are. If you're Khabib, if you're a great fighter like Tony, you withstand punishment like that for that long. Something in the human body can uh, cannot regenerate, like is not is not going to have the same resilience. And Khabib said it matter of factly and not isn't not to insult Tony. He was like, if I had taken that beating from from Gagey, I'd never be the same again. Um, yep. So it's a thing. I mean, we've seen fighters come back from terrible beatings and it is different. But I, you know, like for the weight class, does does anybody hit like Gagey? Can anyone hang around for for five rounds taking those shots like you get blown out by Gagey in a, in a round and a half, you know, like even though it may be more embarrassing than what than what happened to Tony, you're pro it's the boxing thing, right? Like boxing brain damage is so much worse than MMA brain damage, at least I think it is, because in sparring yep. and in fights with the heavier gloves, those guys are taking an enormous number of headshots over time. Maybe not entirely concussed, but you know, those those things add up. And the fact is that the the Tony the Tony that we saw, I'm not particularly excited to see fight again. John McCarthy suggested that Tony Ferguson will be part of those cuts um, that are coming. Yeah. The same way that say, um, the same way that say JDS was, is yep. going to be. I shouldn't say was, yep. it didn't happen yet, but it seems so clear. And then we've got another fighter like Cub Swanson who seemed like he would be part of those cuts and flip the script. You know, two guys yep. that I had counted out on this card, Cub Swanson and Charles Oliveira, who I thought would get rolled. Um, you know, really, really showed up. And it was quite moving to see Cub Swanson uh, after the fight, you know, nearly nearly in tears because he had, he had proved to himself that he was still a UFC caliber fighter um, by rocking the shit out of um, a big, strong guy in Daniel Pineda. Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, th that's, the, that's the interesting thing is that there were several kind of old guard versus new guard matchups on this card. And Cub Swanson was the only old guard fighter that was able to come through. And I think with Daniel, I mean, I mean, we can get to Daniel Pineda uh, and Cub Swanson in a moment, but clearly T Tony Ferguson is part of that old guard that is, I mean, it's it's not looking good. Either Charles Oliveira is one of the absolute elite best lightweights on the planet. And obviously scale-wise he is, right? But the question is like, where's his heart? Where's his long-term conditioning? Can he take shots and still keep on trucking? A lot of those questions are still kind of up there by Charles Oliveira. They weren't really answered with this kind of dominant decision that he was able to take over Tony. So yeah, I think we did get some answers about Tony though. Um, he is clearly past his prime. His wrestling is not really there anymore, almost at all off of his back. He's always had trouble, right? Um, he's been knocked down several times throughout his career. And now at age 37, man, for a guy that relied on his speed, on his durability, on his reflexes, those are the first things to go, right? Power is the last thing to go. And 
Tony isn't really known for having serious, serious power. So, yeah, not a not a great situation for Tony. But to be fair, again, he is 12-2 and two in his last 14 fights. So I think if any of these kind of old guard fighters that lost on the card are, are going to stick around, Tony Ferguson is is likely one of them. Tony uh, Dana White made allusions to the fact that Tony is not, you know, at the same point as is JDS. Um, so, and, and I kind of agree. He, he lost to two of the absolute elite fighters on the planet um, in this in this one. And good on Charles Oliveira. He could be eligible for a title shot next, or he could ask for another top contender bout. I guess it depends on where his head's at and what he feels like he's ready for. But man, this was, you know, he took this fight on three weeks notice and dominated Tony. Very impressive. Yeah, I mean, you could you could do him. Has, has he fought RDA? I don't remember. Uh, no, he has not. Oliveira has not. Yeah, I mean, so Oliveira versus RDA is interesting to me. Uh, Oliveira versus Hooker is uh, yep. a really interesting matchup. Um, I don't think I'd put him. I don't think I'd put him against Gagey uh, yet. I think Gagey should fight someone coming off of a loss. Um, I hear that, but Felder. I would not say no to that matchup. I think that matchup would be fascinating. I, I wouldn't either. But Gagey loses that, and he's. Out. I would just. I'd like to see. I mean, maybe you do. You could do Gagey Hooker. You could do Gagey Felder. Um, those are the. I think those are the, the fights to make. Or you wait and you let him, uh, you know, take a little bit more time because the Khabib fight wasn't that long ago, and you let him get yep. the loser of, of Poirier Connor. Um, although I don't know that if Connor loses that fight to Poirier, which I don't think he will. Um, you know, Gagey. Yeah, Gagey Poirier again is interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how eager Connor will be to come back. Period. I think if he loses that that fight, I wouldn't be shocked if Connor ends up retiring following that. Exactly. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so either. I just don't see him losing that fight. I don't think there's. As I hate Connor McGregor as a dude, but like I just don't see any way he loses that fight. I definitely see ways for him to lose the fight. I think it might be just about as simple as it going past the first round. And again, I need to watch tape and kind of uh, figure out how these two will match up at this point versus, you know, several years ago when they fought at 145. But Charles Oliveira against anyone in the top five, I'm very interested in. Tony Ferguson, by the way, still ranked at like number four, even though he's coming off of two dominant defeats. So I, I think th- that's a little bit odd. I think there are several guys that are going to surpass him sooner or later as these fights play out. But uh, yeah, Oliveira versus anyone in the top five. I like just for the sake of an e- extremely exciting fight. I think the Gaethje matchup would be the most fascinating because uh, Oliveira has a huge edge on the ground if it gets there, right? But can he get it there? And then Gaethje should have a big edge on the feet. And Gaethje's the kind of guy that'll take your heart away, land heavy shots on you. So each of these guys is extremely strong where the other guy is weak. And I think that makes that Oliveira-Gaethje matchup the most fascinating. So it's more of a selfish thing for me. I, I realize that Gaethje's coming off a loss, but he is still ranked above Oliveira. So that would probably be my preference. Mackenzie Dern, Virna Jandiroba, you and I disagreed on the pick on this one. Uh you picked Dern. I, I think you discounted Verna Jandiroba's wrestling and grappling a little bit. And I think that Verna Jandiroba herself discounted her own grappling because she was fighting Mackenzie Dern like she was scared of her on the ground. And Mackenzie Dern, like I had concerns that her athleticism edge and her like she lands heavy strikes that would give her the edge on the feet. But I figured that Jandiroba would be able to take her down at will, which she did. Right, Mackenzie Dern still has horrible, horrible uh, takedown and takedown defense, but. Jandi Roba was able to take her down at will. She just was so timid on the floor. She was so scared and and careful with Mackenzie Dern. Whereas I think in top position, she would have been fine to 
rat out that fight and actually win those last two rounds. Uh, Jandiroba actually looked good in the beginning of the third round, but then McKenzie really put her foot on the pedal and put it on Jandiroba. Uh, a pretty, I think, a really exciting fight considering these girls are only considered to be grapplers. I think it was an excited, well, exciting, well-rounded mixed martial arts bout, man. What were your thoughts on this one? So I, it wasn't exactly the fight that I wanted, um, you know, and I I wanted to see I wanted to see more jujitsu uh, in this match. Unfortunately, and I don't think either one of them is a terrific kickboxer. I think that the comment, as much as I like Dern and she has a great attitude and um, she seems, um, you know, kind of mentally unstoppable, but her the commentary the way the commentary talked about her technical striking is is ridiculous i mean she has some pop but we're never going to see like a ton of we're just not going to see a lot of of knockouts or tkos from punches at that weight class we haven't um traditionally and i don't think she's got you know she's got she's got power but she doesn't have like you know she's not amanda nunez um but her like technically her i mean you know, there were a lot of times when this this looked like a, a YouTube parking lot brawl to me um, <laughs> on the on the feet. Like, because just like chin out, head forward. Did you see where her head was when she caught that knee while she was throwing strikes? Yes. It was like, yes. I mean, Jesus, she was like bending over completely um, with yeah. her hands up in the air. And I'm just like, I know that you're with Jason Perillo. I know that it's going to get better. But yep. There's a lot of she. I think she. I think she can be great. She has to become a more patient striker. Like I think that her will and her athleticism have have gotten her far. But she should have learned in the Amanda Hevis fight that they're not going to take her all the way. And yeah. I, I'd really prefer to see her putting uh, t- just tighter combos together. Um, the, there's, I mean. Sometimes a looping punch, a looping punch and a looping angle is okay to a degree, but that's different than what that's different than what she was doing. Some guys just have that, you know, kind of, and women just have that kind of naturally, but it's still, it's still sort of uh, technical. It might even have to do, I think, with like their body, with you know, their shape of their body or their arms or their torso or the length of their arms or what have you. Um, it's not like she's coming in from create. Exactly. She's not coming in from creative or interesting angles. She's just fucking brawling. And it's not, it's, it's, she's not, I mean, she got, she really got away with it. And she's lucky that she, you know, I mean, she basically walked into a shin um, and almost knocked herself out. So big, I'm a big fan of both of them. No fighter in the eyes with the hurricane mind has ever looked spookier than, than Jen, <laughs> Hope did yes. when she was walking out. She looked fucking terrifying. Uh, yeah, she looks yeah, some did. kind of forest demon, <laughs> and uh, yeah, <laughs> she looks way. It's just funny how the hair did that. Like when her hair is short, you don't think that at all, and then it's like, whoa, these bright white eyes and this big crop of hair. She looked like she. Joanna says she's the boogie woman. Like this, Jenna Roba looked like a fucking boogie woman. Walking yeah, out. It was yeah, pretty it's, amazing. It's, it's also it's also the the crossed eyes thing kind of adds to it a little bit. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, she 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 did look she did look particularly kind of intimidating and. She's very intimidating. Away. And Dur- meanwhile, Dern is just like, and it's you know, it looks like an Instagram model, like surfer. <laughs> but, but uh, she, yeah, Dern's just you know, she's she's great. I can't wait to see what she does next. But she's got to take her boxing training seriously. I mean, I think she's with the right team to do it now, and I did see some improvements in this one. Even though I agree defensively, she's still making a lot of mistakes, and I, I still think she's mainly throwing 
the same jab cross. That's almost like all that's in her library of strikes. And, and that was kind of the issue in her one MMA loss to Amanda Ribas was that Amanda knew exactly what Mackenzie Dern was going to throw. Mackenzie Dern's wrestling sucks, so there's no reason that they would end up on the ground there as long as Amanda Hibas didn't want them to. And with Virna, again, I, I think the biggest issue for Virna was that, yeah, she's not necessarily a better striker technically than is Dern, because Dern has made some improvements lately. Uh, she's also not as tall, nor does she hit as hard. But again, I th- really think if Virna got top position with some confidence and actually like wanted to land some ground and pound, even staying in the guard, I think she would have been fine, man. It was just she was fighting scared there. It was almost like uh, you know, if you're a really good striker, you're very technical, but you're fighting uh, like also an excellent striker, maybe a little bit better than you, but who has serious, serious power. Um, and and that's kind of how Virna was acting towards the ground game, where it's like at any moment, Dern could just catch a submission and it's done. And I think uh, she should have had more confidence in her ground game. But yeah, uh, Dern still has some cleaning up to do in her striking. I think she's with the right team to do that. I think more importantly, her horrid takedown defense needs work, man. Like she had 7% takedown uh, takedown accuracy going into this bout. At this point, it is 5% Nick because she hasn't scored a single takedown let me see. Um, in her UFC career, she has scored one takedown, Nick, and that was in her UFC debut against Ashley Yoder. Outside of that, a lot of these girls are kind of choosing to hang out on the ground with her. And in my opinion, Verna Jandirov was the only one that actually could and actually do well. She just didn't quite make the right decisions. And again, Mackenzie Dern came on strong at the end, which shows that like she has a lot of those intangibles, right? It's not just about the technique or the wrestling. A lot of it is also about the mental strength. She pushed in that third round after a rough first minute or so against Verna, and she won specifically because of that. Um, yep. That's not something that you can really teach. That's something that you either have in you or you don't. So uh, credit to Mackenzie Dern on top of her athleticism to yeah. have that kind of variable. I mean, next fight, next well, next fight for her, it seems very clear to me that you match her up with Tisha Torres coming off of that destruction of Sam Hughes, the late replacement. I'm into it, yes. Sam Hughes uh, pulled a, uh, who was that fighter who's trained by Robert Drysdale, made his UFC debut and gave up on the seat? It was kind of similar to that a little bit where Sam Hughes did not want to be there anymore after a really rough first round against a much, much better Tisha Torres. And and yeah, I mean, Tisha Torres probably should have been the bigger favorite based on how this fight went, especially on short notice. But Kevin Holland, Nick. How about that monstrous knockout of Ronaldo Jacare Souza from his back? I knew that Jacare was going to be the better wrestler, and and that's why I picked him to win this bout, right? I expected that uh, Holland was not going to be able to keep it on the feet where he can score a knockout. And he took him down almost immediately, right? He did exactly what I thought he would be able to do. But for some reason, Jacare just kind of froze there and it just seemed like Kevin Holland's punch or two from his back had enough of an effect to make Jacare defensive which led to Kevin Holland just kind of he, he kind of propelled his left leg kind of swung it over and created a lot of momentum for his upper body to come up as his right hand landed on Jacare and it was it was the most fascinating thing man knocked him out from his back it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't unlike I, I guess the fight that Kevin Holland alluded to where um, who was it that got Nico Price got the knockout from his back previously right, with hammer fists. Uh, but in this case, it was different because there was nothing holding Jacare Souza's head in place. It was Jacare kind of leaning forward that allowed that Kevin Holland right hand to land. And man, well, Kevin Holland has arrived, man. Yeah. Well, what happened there was one of the, sh- there, there was one shot that landed 
and it froze it froze Jacare and he and he covered up a little bit, but he just sat there. Like he was stunned. And then the sub and the subsequent shots, Holland just landed with intense precision. But it was um there was this the the one initial shot that if if Jacare had had the composure to just get like get up, get out of that position, just do something. Yeah. But he hung yeah. out. He got frozen, and he because it really caught him off guard. Um, yeah. And then Holland just ate him up. But there was yeah. like, yeah, it was. Uh, Sosa's response to that initial shot was just no good. Yeah, he literally froze in place, which um, which you know often happens with a guy with a good chin who gets tagged on the feet. You just kind of freeze for just a second, and then you reengage. But he just kind of froze and stayed frozen long enough for Holland to follow up really effectively. So, man, this is a huge win for Holland. Like, he's got, I think, a lot of those intangibles, including the fact that he is willing to suck up to UFC brass when he needs to in order to get, you know, uh, treated like a favorite, in order to get, you know, maybe matchmaking that favors him, maybe uh, fights frequently, maybe a better contract. Like, it works for Daniel Cormier. And Kevin Holland has that. But on top of that, Kevin Holland is a trash talker, not only before the fight, but literally during the he's fight. Funny, yeah. He's funny, yeah. He's he's very real, right? If you ask him his opinion about somebody, and he thinks that like this somebody's a scary man that he's about to fight, he's gonna tell you. He's like, yeah, he's a scary guy, and like I look forward to fighting him. Like he's a super honest guy. Uh, I'd say very likable. You know, when he has that mic in front of him, his trash talk in the ring, and that's to say nothing about his skill, right? He's got really good Brazilian jiu jitsu, uh, not the best wrestling, but. His striking, I think, is probably his biggest strength. And it's fascinating. Like, where was this Kevin Holland, who was this good off of his back, who, by the way, like, threw up several submissions at Jacare. Uh, where was this Kevin Holland uh, a couple of fights ago when he lost to Brendan Allen, man? Like, either Brendan Allen is the best grappler at 185, or, or I don't know, Kevin Holland's made huge improvements, I guess. I guess also the argument could be made that Jacare is literally just a small fraction of what he used to be in his heyday. Yeah, I mean it's over. It's over a year ago, and he had he's had five fights since then. Maybe, you know, maybe maybe I think Brendan Allen is really good, but maybe he panicked a bit. I remember he also had that very messy fight um, a little over a year and a half ago against Gerald Mearshart. So yep. that was a disaster. Like if you had told me that the Kevin Holland who got that um, controversial split decision win over Mearshart would at the end of 2020 be one of the most talked about fighters. After pulling off yeah. a, a five a five and zero year against some hitters, man, like yep. obviously Charlie Antaveros was a, a late replacement, but like Darren Stewart's no joke. Joaquin Buckley is a strong dude who was coming in late, so maybe a tiny bit of favorable matchup here. But you can't say that about Jacare. Anthony Hernandez is no slouch, really. He took him out in thirty nine seconds, so he's you know he's ready for prime time. The question is, what next, right? Do you go? Do you match him up with the other hot prospect, uh, Vittori, um, at this point? Uh. Because even though, you know, even though Vittori's wins, uh, his last win was a little bit. I mean, they're actually they're both they're pretty even wins. I think Vittori's done a bit more in the cage overall, um, but Holland's had this this five fight streak and is really marketable. So you could run, you can run them. You could, uh, you don't want to put him. You could put him against Cannoneer, but Cannoneer probably doesn't take that fight. Um, you could put him against Till, but all that's, or you could put him against Khamayev. Um, they're think talking about Till Vittori. Makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, I mean, coming off the Whitaker decision, it could, it could, it could I mean, make Whit- sense. Whitaker's still number two in the world. Like he's still like truly elite, right? Like losing to him isn't much to be ashamed of, especially by decision. And I yeah. feel like this would be kind of the step up fight because Holland, like you know, he beat an old Jacare, but 
I don't know that it's like that. It's a signature win and it's big, but it's not a win over a current top, top flight middleweight. Like he still doesn't really have that yet. Um, you know, middleweight in his prime. And I think that's what he kind of needs. And I think that might be a decent style matchup for him and yeah, also would make for a fun fight. Can, yeah, Cannoneer, Till, Costa, Vittori, Holland. Those are the guys that people are talking about. Those are the guys with the momentum at this weight class. Although Jack Hermanson, you know, acquitted himself quite well against against Vittori. It was just, you know, not his night. Um, after that no. first, you know, after that first round, he did better. Um, so there's there's a lot of players um, but everyone, you know, everyone wants a Khamayev fight because they want to be the guy that um, that shuts everybody up. So, you know, Holland's calling. Uh, I don't for know. It. Like, we'll I, I'm surprised that a few people are calling Chamayev out. I think it's like, as far as I can tell, it's only tall, lanky, skinny guys that are calling out Chamayev, and that's uh, Neil Magny and Kevin Holland. I don't know that anyone else has been calling him out. Am I wrong, Nick? Um, I feel like. And by the way, till, that, that's I feel significant like... that those two guys are ballsy enough to fight him. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, um, I'd have to go and check. I feel like there's a lot of people who have been like, "Give me that guy," but especially, especially those two. Um, yeah, 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 definitely. Because there's also been a lot of people who've been like, "No, I want nothing to do with that guy." Um, like, like the by the way, the guy that's going to be main eventing this following card, Stephen Thompson, who you know, he, like, right. he's not making a bad point. You have you have everything to lose and nothing really to gain from that bout, right? Like, beating that guy is going to make everyone go, "Oh, it turns out he sucks anyway." And if you lose to him, then you've just lost to a guy who's got three fights in the UFC, who's you know not really ranked at all. So I, I, I get that logic, but man, am I impressed by Holland and? Magni repeatedly calling this man out. I've got to give him a lot of credit for it because on paper, the style matchup does not favor those two guys. I don't know if you agree. We, I don't, I haven't seen enough of Shema. Shemaev's still a mystery to me. Some, some similar to how chaos Williams will be discussing a little bit later is. So I don't know. I know that I'd love to see Shemaev doesn't seem like he has any trouble cutting to 170 as far as I can tell. I'm a big, I mean, I know that there's like the whole marketing angle here, but I would just I I'd love to see a guy steamroll through his division, semi similarly to how Adesanya has done. Although Adesanya has had some degree of adversity with the Vittori fight and certainly in the Gaslam fight, yeah. Um, but I'd love to see I'd love to see him, you know, just do what Connor did at 145, like just like starch a division um, versus. Like, cause some, it's just, it's fun. It's fun to watch. Whereas he could be the world beater champ at 170 and just get totally stomped by Holland, which will take away, uh, you know, some of the mystique. I don't right. know. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, look, I, I think at this point you kind of have to give him a, a tough matchup, right? You can't keep, uh, babying Chimaev. Although, you know, the argument could be made that his last fight wasn't babying him per se. I would say that like stylistically or definitely favored him in a lot of ways. Um, I think, look, if Chimaev is going to talk a big game, if he's going to call out the world champion at his weight division since, you know, he made basically his UFC debut against, you know, shitty competition, um, let's put him in the fire. I, I'm interested in seeing Chimaev get really challenged. And it's interesting that he's been silent when it comes to both of these callouts. Like, I don't think I've heard him respond. Certainly to Neil Magny. He's been mum about Neil Magny the whole time, which I find to be fascinating. There's got to be something that there's got to be some concern with him and Neil Magny, either that, or I guess Chimaev could be vying for a shot against somebody that's eligible for a title so that he can get I just a title think shot. It's, straight, his next it's straight marketing, man. Nobody like casuals don't know Neil Magny more casuals. know Leon Edwards from you the, Mas so? from the, that Masvidal clip went everywhere. Yeah. 
And he's big. Yeah, he's big guess, in the UK. Yeah. I mean, he's been quiet for a long time. But Leon, Leon Edwards globally is, I think, a more a more famous uh, recognized fighter than Neil Magny. I think nerds like us certainly know Magny because we watched him take 362 fights <laughs> over the course of a couple of years, and before his, you know, his uh, USADA pop or whatever it was. He was everywhere, you know. He was he was fighting six times a year, and he was usually winning, um, unless he was, you know, running into a guy who he just didn't have an, an answer for the power um, or the explosiveness, like a Lorenz Larkin. But mostly, he won out. And sometimes with those explosive guys, he was able to eat it and then come back when they gassed because his tank is so great, like against uh, Hector Lumbar. So, yep. um, you know, Mag, I think that Shemaev probably. I think Chimaev probably runs through Magny. Um, I don't see that necessarily happening with Holland, but I need to see the size. I just think that the, he clearly has um, he clearly has good power. He's got power and precision, and I don't yep. like Magny can eat shots, but I don't know, man. That guy he slept a big dude um, in Mearshart with like one shot. Yeah, but Mearshart so. has a mediocre chin. Like Mearshart has been. Knocked down and knocked out several times at middleweight, though. Yeah, yeah, but but a hard hitter is a hard hitter. Yeah, do you know what I'm saying? Like like a like a heavy hitter at 170 can still knock out uh, a middleweight with a shitty chin, and we've seen that with like some of the moves up and down uh, divisions. Like the power doesn't disappear all of a sudden just because you're fighting one division up. Let's quickly run through the rest of the card. Cyril gone. TKO Junior Dos Santos. We largely expected it. Dos Santos just kind of turned his head away. He's probably getting cut by the UFC. Cup Swanson showed. Uh, I think it might like I was concerned that Daniel Pineda has been off the juice for nine or ten months now, and that he might not be the same fighter that could be what happened here like he did not get tired like this in any of his other bouts man he was exhausted right before he got knocked out and that was literally uh you know a minute or two into the second round like he he did not look good here man cup swanson is showing that he still has enough in the tank to beat a limited uh like i guess a, a lower level fighter who has some weaknesses who doesn't have excellent wrestling like he will still beat that level of fighter and he's on a two-fight win streak rafael faziev just blew through Renato Maicano. Maicano looked good with some of those jabs. Yeah, and you, I got to fight with you on this one, man, because like you said, you thought Maicano was outstriking him in this fight, and you you wrote me that, and I'm like, what are you what are you smoking, dude? Come on. I'll give you details about what I was smoking later, but you are right. Uh, Moicano, <laughs> uh, like I rewatched the fight because we had that bit of a, a debate over text. And yeah, I mean, Fiziev, like he wasn't landing a whole lot for a while there and Moicano was landing that jab several times, but Fiziev still landed those calf kicks consistently and I wasn't giving those enough credit uh, when I watched it live. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Fiziev was largely the better striker, especially considering the I, size discrepancy. I, I mean, I love this fight. Watching Fiziev's high-level defense and striking early on, he was... I thought he was straight up on defense matrixing Moicano in the first 90 seconds of the fight. He would know what he was going to throw. I don't know if Moicano was telegraphing or what. He would he would dodge it so smoothly and fire back with just bomb. Just I mean, yeah. perfect technique, not overthrowing, but he's got so much power through his technique, and he's so compact. Um, what happened was then Moicano started mixing in the takedown feints, and he was scoring his jab off of that, which was a great strategy. But it was just it was like something for Moicano to like adjust to, and it took him a, it took him a bit. But he, yeah. I mean, he was just he was just eating some jabs from like a tall guy. It was nothing like um, every time Fiziev landed, and then holy shit, talk about a three piece with a combo. 
Yes. Or three P. I'm sorry, a three a three piece combo with a drink. <laughs> or, shit, I totally messed up. I can't sound cool. <laughs> three piece and a soda. I screwed it up. Fuck it. That's but funny. oh my god, digging into the body, follow it with the left, following it up with it was it was left to the body, right hand, left hand, right. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, it was the left hook that oh. shut him off. Yeah, it was. So it was left. Yeah, left to the body. Then that. Then the right hand overhand had him, right had him overhand right had him falling back. And then just yep, punch outs like Mike Tyson's punch out style, yeah. <laughs> and it, it was exact. But also to like, I basically did predict exactly that on the last uh, on our last show. So you know, credit to me. <laughs> I mean, you you and I you and I both predicted this fight correctly. Uh, uh, my my whole thing is that I expect Moicano to get into this fight and be super unconfident about his stand up, given his last couple of fights, uh, the fact that he was knocked out twice in a row before his last win, where he took it right to the ground and got that submission. Um, my only concern for Fiziev was if he gave up his back, and I didn't think that was likely given the athletic discrepancy and the fact that Fiziev is a really good wrestler. I think people don't realize how good of a wrestler he is yet, and I think they will uh, in the next couple of fights. Like he's, He gets takedowns regularly, and I, I don't know if he's been taken down in the UFC yet. Um, let's uh, let's talk about Gavin Tucker, Billy Quarantillo. We disagreed on this one. Uh, I had Tucker because I, I just think he's technically Nick, like, in a different league, there are so few fighters in the world that are technically better than him almost anywhere. Like, his wrestling is phenomenal. His Brazilian jiu-jitsu, he's a black belt, and he's really good there. His stand-up is so technical, so clean. He was a shorter man here against Billy Quarantillo, who you know was coming off that impressive second-round knockout. And quite frankly, on, I think, a seven- or eight-fight winning streak going into this one, and Gavin Tucker just dominated Billy. Uh, really, really impressive performance by Gavin Tucker. Speaking yep. of dominated, Tisha Torres, Sam Hughes just ran through her. Sam Hughes didn't want any. Part yeah, of we that don't even have round. to talk about that. That was no, we're really like not. watching. That was like watching someone who usually fights on easy difficulty moving it up to hard. It was yeah, exactly. Tor- you know, we haven't exactly. seen Torres. Torres is styled, and it showed you the difference. I mean, Torres has faced some adversity. She would lost, I think, three or four in a row, and she is certainly undersized. But man, she's strong, and she has all of those skills. And you saw the difference between you know a top 10 uh mma fighter at strawweight yeah. and Absolutely. and you know a regional fighter holy yeah, shit she, she is now two wins in a row by the way after that win over prospect uh, brianna van buren who was a decent sized favorite over tisha and then this one over hughes uh, she seems to be in a better place i know she struggled with um depression in the past and she just seems to be in a much better place. She's much more aggressive than she used to be because she is extremely fast, even for strawweight, but she never uses that speed. And it's, it's great to see her actually using all of her tools. Uh, we've talked uh, recently about other fighters who are suddenly actually like being more assertive with their skills, and it's bringing them big results. Tisha Torres is one of them. Granted, uh, you know, I, I still don't think she could beat you know the champ or or anybody in that necessarily. Well, she's not. I mean, she's not a weight. Like the fact of the matter is, it's an insanely yeah, difficult division, and she's not. You yeah. know, she's undersized yeah she's undersized and she doesn't have much power for a shorter stockier girl even though she's extremely fast and technical so if she had power i think that would have made such a big difference throughout her career Uh, i actually think she could lose some muscle mass i think she's a little too i think she's more heavily muscled um do you see a downside to it um maybe i mean maybe just maybe just it's not helping her i mean maybe just exhaustion i don't know um yeah 
I'm maybe just not. like maybe it would help her if if speed. I feel is like her conditioning be... has never been a concern. No, it hasn't. Speed is always hasn't. up there, up there. I just feel like a little more muscle, a little more fast twitch muscle fiber will only add to her power. And if it doesn't slow her yeah. down and okay. lets her be like uh, more competitive as far as the strength goes with those 115 pounders, it's not the worst thing. But I do hear it. She's a very muscle muscular girl. Uh, Chase Hooper Nick had to come back after getting dominated for two rounds against the mediocre P- Peter Barrett, who is now yeah. 0 two in the UFC. Chase Hooper got that heel hook in the third round uh it was kind of started off with that imanari role which is what tony ferguson he landed was a couple of them uh, yeah a couple of imanari rolls and that's how they ended up on the ground barrett uh, ended up surviving the first one or uh, one or so and then got tapped in that third round really uh look chase hooper like i think joe rogan spent the whole like first two rounds talking about how chase hooper doesn't belong in the ufc um he's right like he could use some developing elsewhere i'm glad that he's training with ryan hall and i mentioned that last week i think that was the difference here because ryan hall's heel hooks in particular are literally maybe the best in the sport and chase hooper coming out here after training with Ryan Hall coming out here with a hill hook finish really makes a difference. Um, I remember when I had a uh, kind of one-on-two session with John Danaher. Uh, I have done a bunch of those over the years, Uh, not in a couple years now, but uh, he he would kind of teach you the intricacies of the hill hook and what just little, little nuances that you could change in order to make it way more effective and and, uh, way kind of more high percentage. And Chase Hooper clearly had that, like the way that he set it up, the way that he dug into it. He didn't use his arm to, to turn that heel, right? He used his whole body. You don't necessarily want to reach your um, your arm back to catch the heel of your opponent, right? You want to turn your entire body back and then and then kind of turn the body in the opposite direction in order to break the uh, in order to pop that kneecap. And Chase Hooper did everything right here, so good job on him. Although again, he needs some development. Maybe take a year off and really focus on the striking and wrestling because he's extremely weak uh, at those two disciplines. Yeah, he's a kid, right? He's twenty one, and like. Yes, Ryan Hall's been able to figure it out to some degree over like a lot of time, but the 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 days of the Dustin Hazlitz and the yeah. Tamin McCory Barncat, you know, like primarily jujitsu fighter, it's just yeah, it's not that it's not that sustainable. So why take the damage and the beatings now against super super high level kickboxers? Because you're going to run into one pretty darn quickly uh, yep. in that division, yeah. and. You know, go and see. And it's he's also someone who's probably going to move up a weight class or two, like as he grows. I mean, he's a kid. He looks like a kid. <laughs> yeah, and 145, in my opinion, is probably a more stacked division than 155 at this point. So maybe that wouldn't be the worst thing for him. But either way, man, he's going to be out strength to that division. He needs to seriously he, lift yes. some heavy weights. And he needs to work on his wrestling, seriously work on his wrestling, and seriously work on his striking with somebody like Jason Perillo. Um, that that's the kind of kind of focus training that this kid needs. And again, he either needs to go uh, kind of treat it as more of a developmental contract and and fight on the low, on the regional scene for the time being, or he needs to take a year off and really focus. Yeah, if he likes striking, it may he may be someone that doesn't want that. He may be someone for whom I mean that's something we don't like talk about enough. He may be a jujitsu fighter, in which case there's other yeah. stuff for him to do. Like we shouldn't assume that just because a guy's great like that and wants to fight in the UFC, that he's going to uh, take to, to the striking game or have the yeah. affinity for the striking game that's really required. So that's a that's something for him to uh, for him to decide. But we certainly haven't seen evidence of it uh, so far that he likes the he likes the violence on the feet. Yeah, I definitely agree, and and that's a fair point. Like there are some guys who historically Pete Spratt was known for this. 
His ground game always sucked. His kickboxing was always phenomenal, but he refused to really work on his ground game. He preferred to train where he is strong because, you know, it's better for the confidence or it feels better or something. And maybe Chase Hooper is one of those guys, in which case his ceiling is even lower than I originally thought it was. Um, Nikolai, we broke down this card. We actually went kind of heavy on it. Dude, we didn't talk about JDS Cyril Gunn. Well, yeah, I just kind of mentioned them. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just so what we thought would happen happened. <laughs> yeah. an, accum- an accumulation of strikes and 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 JDS. I hate to to knock a guy or because suggest he doesn't have heart, but he doesn't have heart anymore, Nick. He he takes he takes these shots. It's happened in a bunch of fights, and all of a sudden he does the Chad Mendes up against the cage or uh, against yes. Connor or the Brock Lesnar um, after he was recovering from that liver shot with Overeem. It's like, I'm going to stay here until they stop the fight. <laughs> and that's literally, that's exactly it. He just, he just buries his head in his hands uh, face first on the floor. Every time against Nganu, uh against Rosenstruck, I think against blades as well. And here against gone, like as soon as he takes a clean shot, he has no intention of continuing to fight through that. And, you know, it's unfortunate because I really like the guy. He's like a sweetheart. He's just like a teddy bear. And, you know, w- you know, one of the fighters that I've really been following and, 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 you know, have a little bit of a preference for. But it's a shame to see him on this four-fight losing streak to, granted, really, really good opposition who are heavy hitters. But the fact that he's showing no heart is disappointing. I'd almost, I'd almost rather, I mean, I know this is not good for his health, but I'd almost rather him actually take a clean knockout rather than just like giving up at some point. It could be something physiological that's terrifying. I mean, I heart's heart's tricky and I know I get what you're saying and, and it, it might be right, but who knows what state his brain is in after the, after the cane fight and after some of those other, uh, you know, some of the wars that he's had. And I just like, he, he may just medically not, it may not make sense for him medically to be in there anymore. Like there could be some, I just don't know. I don't know if it's pure, if it's pure quit or if there's something physiological that's shutting down and we can have the mind over matter like conversation forever, but I just, I haven't been in his shoes. So I don't want to, I hesitate to just say like the guy has no heart, but some, something, something's up and it's causing either his mind or his body to quit. Yeah, I mean, he's got seven UFC losses, and six of them are by knockout. I mean, at this point, it's probably time oh, to, there's no, to move yeah. on to maybe Bellator and see if there's a couple of heavyweights to beat up there. Maybe Fedor, that would be, I guess, kind of interesting with two you know old, old men who are way past their prime, although they were kind of at the top of their game in different, uh, different times. Fedor is still kind of trucking, still kind of doing okay against... I actually would pick Fedor in that fight. I think I think Fedor, Fedor still has better uh, one-shot knockout power, I think. Yeah, his his speed is going to be, I think, a big factor. And uh, JDS, again, just like all you got to do is land clean one time. And I think Fedor might have the opportunity to do that. Although Fedor's chin is actually pretty bad. His heart is there, but the guy's got no chin left. That would be interesting. I mean, I, I guess that's something for Bellator to kind of decide on whether they're interested in doing that. I know they've been saying no to some uh, former UFC fighters who are on a losing streak. So wouldn't be surprised if they were not willing to pay JDS a hundred grand even to main event one of their cards. Who's next though? For because I mean, we're talking about now a top five, top six uh, fighter. Does he get the? Does he? Do, does Cyril get the winner of Overeem Volkov? Do you match him up immediately against Rosenstrike and basically go to the the winner of Overeem Volkov? Yeah. I, I think that's the perfect step up against two uh, two kind of uh, longtime high level heavyweights who have legitimate holes and like it takes a real special prospect to beat them. I think that's a matchup in which we can find out whether or not Cyril Gaon is like that truly special because 
you know, his level of opposition thus far has not been very high. You know, JDS with no heart has been his best opponent yet, I believe. Yeah, I mean, the problem is you got you got the top four guys at heavyweight, Miocic, Ganu, Blades, Rosenstrike, no fight scheduled for any of them. You know, it's like... Yeah, Come on, weird. let's get this mm-hmm. let's get this division moving, you know? It's uh and that means that if that fight happens in February and they both come out of it with no injuries, then the fight with Gaian will will probably take place in the late spring or early summer. Like he's still he's still only 7 and 0. Yeah, like I want to see this I, I want to see this guy get um get some miles on him. But I don't know who else you you put in with him unless you give unless you give him you know, just to keep him busy, you give him Blagoy Blago- I mean, Ivanov. Or yeah, something, you could or- feed feed him Walt Harris. Blagoy Blago- Ivanov is a crafty guy. Yeah, I think Blagoy Walt Harris are options. Ag- exactly. Uh, possibly yeah. Augusto Sakai, if you're willing to make it up. But it falls off. It falls off real quick. I mean, you're not gonna you're not gonna throw a Romanov at him yet. Um, you could maybe no. You could I, give I him the well. Here, here's something. Here's what you do if you want to. If you want to give him a stepping stone uh-huh. fight while you while you fix the clog the clog in the drain at the top of the division, yep. you give him the winner of Hardy to Burrow this weekend. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, and that would be interesting in a lot of ways. Actually, I, I think there's a good chance that if Hardy comes out with a win here, that the UFC would love to use Hardy as uh, the stepping stone for Cyril, given Hardy's. Although the UFC really likes Hardy and they treat him like a prospect largely, they are willing to match him up against uh, top level opposition occasionally. I think they might be willing to sacrifice Hardy in order to hype up uh, Cyril Gaon all the more. So yeah, that could be that could be definitely an interesting pro- um, an interesting prospect. It's just weird because way to, way to keep him busy. Yeah, it's weird because Gone now is at number seven and above him, you know, I guess Derek Lewis, I don't know if he's currently lined up. Is he is he currently to fight a uh, lined up to fight Blades in a in a kind of reschedule that bout or no? Not officially, no. Okay, fair enough. So um, yeah, so interesting card behind us. I think it was really was a phenomenal card. I think you called it the best card of the year, and, I, and I'd have a hard Most time. Most exciting. Yeah, I'd have a hard time disagreeing. I do want to quickly discuss one small thing. Dana White made a claim at the post-fight press conference that the reason that the flyweight division is now flourishing is because Mick Maynard made some moves. Um, what moves would those be? By cutting half the division, including Brandon Moreno, who main evented in this card, who, like, put on the exciting fight. Like that's the move that McMainer made. McMainer didn't do shit. I'm sorry, but that's, that's bullshit. The flyweight division is always phenomenal. It's just now the UFC is actually willing to put them on a main card or in a sort of main event, which is great. And uh, I'm sure Figueredo being at the top of that division is what's really making the difference. I don't think it's McMainer with due respect. Um, Let's take a break, Nick. We're going to break down this weekend's UFC fight night, which honestly is probably more stacked overall, even though maybe the fight at the top of the bill isn't quite as, it's not a title fight, right? But still a really, really good card coming up this weekend where uh, Stephen Thompson faces off with serious prospect Joff Neal Nikolai. It's not a marquee. It's an interest. It's an interesting fight of not, you know, really a top, top, top level gatekeeper. Um, fight for for Jeff Neal. Yep. So, you know, we'll see. But the other one was was clearly like a pay-per-view. And this is almost it's almost pay-per-view level. Oh yeah, I think it's definitely pay-per-view level with just a title fight at the top of this card. It's a phenomenal card, yeah. man. Full of names, full of prospects. Uh, full of names for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Great way to close out the full, year. Full of guys that are ranked. So, excited to break this one down for you guys. Let's take a break, come back and do it next. All right, everybody. So I've got the first pick this week. UFC Fight Night Thompson versus Neil. 
Saturday, December 19th. Uh, broadcast kicks off at 4 p.m. ET, so be ready for that. Sometimes when the UFC has an event that starts earlier, they're really poor at communicating it. So you may be trying to tune in for the undercard at 7 o'clock, as per usual, and be like, oh, shit, I missed eight fights. And we don't <laughs> want that to happen to you. So if you're a listener to our show, we give you the benefit of you know, letting you know when to get ESPN Plus to work. So you should probably start at like 3.45, so give you 15, 15 minutes to reset your password, get it <laughs> to actually launch properly, everything that I generally go through when I'm trying to watch something on ESPN Plus. But my first pick... Man, I there are some big mean dudes from Cameroon, and I am going to pick Tefan Inchukwi in, in uh, <laughs> to defeat uh, the very tough uh, Jamie Pickett. I know that. Uh, I mean, neither of these guys has um, a ton, you know, of experience, and uh, Jamie Pickett had a, a very sexy looking KO on the contender series, but sometimes the contender series is not the greatest uh, judge of talent uh, or way to assess talent. I think those fights, although I'm doing the same thing in looking at, <laughs> looking at his opponent and uh, but I just believe that he's got, he, he's got the fight changing power. That's go. That's going to absolutely uh, disrupt Pickett's consciousness. So I see this. I see this as being uh, that the team Lloyd Irvin fighter, and he, there's still some really good, uh, some really good guys over there, um, is going to come in and make a statement against the um, Phil Davis bodied <laughs> Jamie Pickett. Yeah, I am there with you on the pick. Tafan is a former kickboxing world champion, trains under Irvin, like you said, which, to be honest with me, is like bad points because Irvin's like a skeevy, weird, like. Why you, dude? Why you bring it? Yeah, but why, why you bring in ethics into murder sports? Fair enough. Um, <laughs> yeah, Tafan has got sharp hands. Uh, finished all of his MMA opponents so far, but only a few fights of experience. I think he's four and zero. Uh, really fast body kick and throws hard to the body when his opponent is kind of pressed up against the fence. I like the hulking, powerful Tafan on this one. He's slower, but should have enough power and athleticism to get a win over the, like, I think overall underwhelming Pickett, who doesn't necessarily have a whole lot of power or, like, isn't particularly strong, but he will have the height and reach advantage here. Um, I do think the odds might be just slightly too wide just because Pickett has a ground game, and I don't I don't think we know much about uh, Tafan's. My first pick is going to be Rick Glenn to beat Carlton Minos. I favor the bigger Glenn to um, to, to beat Minos here, who, like, he has a great jab, right, but not a whole lot else, and he kind of showed that even a slightly more dynamic game will work well against him in his UFC debut. Um, I, I think his low level of competition experience in Alaska is probably not helping him either. Glenn hasn't fought in a while, but he's skilled and large enough with plenty of high-level experience, I think, to get the win in this one. Uh, Nick, for the record, I didn't expect you to do that intro to the show. I usually do that, and I love that you did. That was awesome. So we're going to be doing that a little more often. No, I'm not doing more work unless you up my compensation. Wait, so that was... (laughs) Why am I seeing that fight? Oh, wait, dude, that fight got canceled. Did it really? Yeah, I'm like, what are you? T- I'm like, why don't I have that listed? Yeah, that that fight got uh, canceled. Well, uh, Rick Glenn backed out. You know, I should. I I'm I'm sitting here wondering. I'm like, you know, I researched that fight. I heard a little bit about it. I don't have anything written down. And I'm like, why don't I have anything written down? And that's because earlier in the day, Tapology told me that that fight 
had been canceled. So good job on your research there. So jerky. Nick, uh, here's the thing. Oh, it seems like Carlton Minnes actually has a replacement opponent, which you and I, which you weren't aware of either. So good job on your research. No, I do. I am aware of that. Oh, you are. I have man. I had no idea. Yeah. I've been behind Nikolai. Did not know this. I have. I have Minnes against. Oh wait. Honestly, I think they found that replacement for him in between when we were recording sections. Could be. It, it's uh, who's, he, Christos, who's he fighting now? Christos Chiagos. Who's was like a yeah that wasn't on there this morning. Guy. Yeah, definitely not. That changes a lot. Um, hmm, interesting. My first pick is going to be Draco Rodriguez to beat Eamon Zahabi. Draco is athletic. He seems to be very technical standing, technical on the ground. Zahabi, although he's very technical in his own right, in my opinion, he's not like very dynamic. He's not very explosive. Um, his chin might be in question after that terrible knockout he uh, took against, I think it was Marcano a couple of years ago. So I'm going to go with Draco Rodriguez here, the more dynamic man to pick up the win. It was not Moicano. It was... Um, Somebody that throws a lot Hamel? of spinning... Spinning elbow. It's the uh, Moicano of this weight division. <laughs> Hamos, maybe. Let me see. Yeah, that's that's who it is. I believe is that who that's it is? who it is. That that sounds right to me. Yeah, I'm looking. Yeah, at Ricardo Ricardo. Ricardo Hamos. Yep. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on that pick, buddy? I haven't seen anything in the cage that makes that makes me believe. And this is going to sound so stupid, but he's got. He's got kind of the, the killer instinct. Like there's something there's something missing in his previous fights that just doesn't entirely compute. I don't know what it is, but I have trouble uh, looking across the cage and seeing you know Draco Rodriguez and not being like this guy. This guy is going to find a way um, to exploit that weakness and fin- and finish him. It's an intangible kind of thing. He just seems kind of he just seems kind of flat. I think it might be his lack of physicality or athleticism. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. He just seems kind of flat. So, yeah, I had that pick also. Next is – this will probably not be popular for a pick at this level. I think that Marcin Sabura is just uh, beyond the level of heavyweight that Greg Hardy is going to be able to use his strength and athletic skills um, to defeat. I think that to, I think that Tabora um, grappling and probably on the feet I – mean, he's a big dude. Um, I don't think he's going to get big brothered. Uh, by Greg Hardy, and I think he's I think he's fair, fairly savvy and wily. So I see Ta- I see Tybura, uh making this a difficult and exhausting fight uh, for Greg Hardy. A close first round, maybe even Hardy wins the first round, but that Tybura, um you know, kind of blankets him uh, against the cage or on the mat um, in order to get a decision. Yeah, I've picked Greg Hardy fights correctly for the past few matchups, but I can't really say the same for Tybura fights. Hardy has done kind of a great job of honing his skills at American Top Team, kind of bringing out his strengths, the athleticism, the the heavy hands, and hiding his weaknesses, uh, that being the ground game and, and his, um, I guess, cardio. He obviously has serious power in his right hand and is extremely athletic, but we still haven't seen much of the ground game. Um, and he's, again, been beating up largely mediocre competition. I consider Marcin, kind of like you said, to be on that Alexander Volkov level rather than on that Maurice Green level that Hardy has no trouble beating. Given Tybura's recent success and improvements, I'm giving the more well-rounded fighter the edge. He should be able to do well enough on the feet as he has the craftier fighter everywhere. Um, I do have concern, obviously, if Hardy gets aggressive early, I think he can get the knockout. And I, I, I do think, though, if Marcin can get takedowns, which is a big F because Hardy's big and powerful, big and heavy, 
Uh, Hardy's power is always a concern, especially uh, against, you know, the type has been knocked out recently. I'm assuming Tabura can make it out of round one. And if he does, I think he wins it. Uh, if Tabura does pull this off, he will be on a four-fight win streak in 2020 after going winless in 2019. So this would be a huge resurgence for him, especially over you know a guy with a bit of notoriety in this matchup. Uh, I did have this a lot lower because uh, Greg Hardy's power is a real concern for me, but I do agree with the pick. My next pick is going to be in the Anthony Pettis-Alex Morono matchup. Obviously, Pettis is... You know, he's had the much higher ceiling throughout his career. He's accomplished quite a bit having won the uh, lightweight title. Uh, both guys are actually Taekwondo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts. Morono's an actual welterweight, while Pettis is a lightweight. Pettis does not do well against pressure fighters, and Morono is a high-output pressure fighter. Uh, Morono's in his prime, while Pettis is quite a bit past his. But Pettis is, kind of, I think, on another level athletically and technically, right? Plus, his counter right hand at welterweight has been very powerful, as he showed against Stephen Thompson. I'm going with Pettis because I assume he has enough left in the gas tank to handle an opponent whose main goal is to basically be an exciting fighter. Morono talked in an interview about how he's not really trying to be champion. That's more like um, Joff Neal's position, I think, uh, from that Fortis MMA camp. He believes that he can be like a long-running mainstay UFC fighter who wins bonuses. And I think Pettis can still beat that sort of fighter, even if he's a couple years younger. I just feel like Pettis' much higher ceiling is going to kind of edge this out for him, his explosiveness, his speed. But he did take this fight on short notice, so I could see Morono's pressure eventually wearing on him. Um, I'm just kind of favoring the athletic edge that Pettis should have. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm picking Pettis. I mean, what's amazing is that Pettis is a 10-9 and 9 UFC fighter, wow. which kind of That's blows insane. my mind. Um, it really is. Um, but I've also got, I've also got uh, Pettis here. This could be the difference between Pettis going uh, 500 in the UFC. That's astounding to me, Nick. I didn't know that statistic. Uh, good, uh, good catch there. I'm gonna go with in the main event. I'm gonna pick Stephen Thompson to beat Jeff Neal. All right, tell me more. I just think that Thompson that, that Thompson's seen this kind of thing before. I think he's a tough matchup. I think Neal doesn't have a lot of five round exp- uh, five round fight experience. And I, yes, he's got power, but Aside from that that Pettis thing, and I don't want to call out a fluke KO, but like Thompson's eaten and survived a, a good amount of shots. I just see him I see him being able to to really control the distance. He's one of the best distance managers uh, in all of mixed martial arts. Um, and I think I think we're gonna see that. And I won't be surprised if he does um, some pretty serious damage to the legs and body um, of Joff Neal. Uh, in the early rounds, which makes it, uh, which kind of saps some of Neil's power. I think there exists the chance that Neil catches him. Um, I also think it's it's going to be to Thompson's benefit to not do what he did uh, against Tyron Woodley and stay off, uh, you know, not move back and end up against a cage, just uh, dodging shots. Um, so I think, yeah, I think that just, I think this is a veteran, a veteran bump up too high uh, for the surging Neil. Yeah. Um, this one is fascinating to me. I'm actually glad this became a five-round fight rather than the three rounds that it was initially scheduled for. 
Neil is obviously like a super, super hot prospect. 6-0 and in the UFC, really seen as a contender, I think, at this point. Certainly with this win, he would be at the top of the list uh, to vie for that welterweight title. Kind of pressures, right? But he doesn't pressure with constant offense. He pressures with fakes and feints, waits for you to throw something, and then he counters. And he doesn't really counter like after he slips, right? He counters while you're throwing. He moves his head off the center line and throws something immediately, and he's fast enough to pull that off. And that's something that I think, like, like is special about Neil. I think he might be the fastest man at welterweight. Averages 2.25 knockdowns per 15 minutes. And it's not, I don't think he's the type of guy that has heavy, heavy hands. I think he's the type of guy whose power comes from his speed. He has six knockdowns in his six UFC fights, which I think is pretty unbelievable, especially considering there are a couple of fights where he has no knockdowns, which means he has multiple knockdowns in some of his UFC fights, right? Um, super sharp left cross, fantastic left head kick, which he's finished and hurt several opponents with. Uh, his takedown defense and uh, even offensive wrestling accuracy are solid. He's only been taken down once in his uh, in his UFC debut, and that was six fights ago. Thus far, if you ask me, he's shown almost no weakness. The only uh, time he's been knocked down was against Nico Price, and that was due to a heavy, heavy headbutt, and he was recovered in almost no time. He does, however, uh, hold a loss against Kevin Holland from years ago when Holland used to compete at 170. Thompson is obviously like a karate master, one of the best kickboxers in the history of the sport, in my opinion. Um, and he does really, really, really well against super aggressive opponents, right? Especially like pressure fighters like Vincente Luque. But Neil is not necessarily aggressive, right? He pressures as he waits for a counter, he as he waits for the counter opportunity, but he doesn't just throw recklessly, which is what allows Thompson to beat up guys like Vincente Luque and Jorge Masvidal. Um and if you think about it, right, Neil being a patient southpaw striker who's very fast with the left hand, he's very similar to Darren Till, who had a really, really close uh, decision with Stephen Thompson, also a five-rounder. So I can see this actually being potentially a staring contest if uh, if uh, Thompson's uh, decides to be really careful and Neil decides not to be too aggressive, which he's not overall too aggressive, but he does start exchanges at times. Um, my concerns are that Thompson has five on experience and Neil doesn't. Also, how well will Neil react to the big spotlight for the first time? Um, but I do think that Thompson's chin is beginning to go and Neil is a knockdown machine. I'm going with a younger, more dangerous, more durable and powerful fighter in this one. But if he's going to be overly aggressive, then Thompson is going to uh, do some damage. Um, I just think patience is going to be the name of the game, which is why this could very well be a boring fight. Wait, so you're going with? Uh, Neil Magny. Neil Magny's not in this fight. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Jeff Neal. I, I, <laughs> I mixed one Neal up with the other. <laughs> I'm going with Jeff Neal. Okay. We'll see. You may. I mean, you may be right. Um, what's your next pick? Uh, my next pick is going yep. to be in the Darren Wynn versus Anthony, Antonio Arroyo matchup. I like. We all know Darren Wynn. He's the the tiny little wrestler that could. He's got solid wrestling. He missed weight in his last fight. And this fight is actually being held at 195, which is interesting. It's something that I just noticed on Tapology. Arroyo is a tall, athletic kickboxer who has been developing his ground game and his takedown defense. Uh, he lost a decision in his UFC debut to uh, Muniz, who's like a master submission grappler. And they spent a good portion of that fight on the ground. He was able to get up successfully. He was able to avoid submissions against a really high-level uh, jiu-jitsu guy. So impressive I think in that way from Arroyo I expect that Arroyo should be able to do well against Darren Wynn who I don't necessarily expect to have a whole lot of cardio and I think just the size disparity can make a big difference here it could I 
Listen, we'll know in the first round. If Darren Wynn is going to go in and get like a high crotch and just and flip him and and ride him in the first round, then there's no reason to, under, to think that won't happen in the next two rounds. I just don't know. If Wynn can't take him down, it's going to be a very, very long day. No doubt. Um, or maybe but, a short But I think one, there's actually. a good chance. Yeah, I mean, Wynn can take some punishment, but yeah, it's. Uh, I'm gonna. I actually, I think Wynn's gonna be able to take him down. Yeah, you think uh, but, you think Wynn, Wynn can do it? Yeah, um, look, Wynn yeah. is a skilled fighter. He's got a great team behind him. I just, you know, seeing him compete in his last fight against um, not great. Uh, yeah, who, who who was it that he lost to, Nick? After he got exhausted, Mearshart. Yeah, Gerald Mearshart. Mearshart is not uh, like a quarter of the kickboxer that Antonio Arroyo is. And he's also a southpaw like Mirshard is. So for those reasons, I'm, le- I'm leaning Arroyo. I also think Arroyo might be a special talent. He's got that Luke Rockhold thing going, except he's not absolutely just terrifying from top position. He's just got like a really good southpaw kickboxing game. Uh, but yeah, this is our first split on the card. What's your next pick, buddy? No, it's not. We split on the last one. Oh, oh, you're right. Second split on the card. Jesus, right? wake the fuck up, you hazy, foggy motherfucker. I'm, in, I, I'm really in a fog today, Nick, and this must be what it feels like it's to okay. be you every day. Um, yeah, but shorter and with a much higher BMI. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with – this is a tough one to pick because I don't feel great about this pick, but I'm going to go with, with Melvin Moraes over Rob Font um, just because Moraes has the more varied game, and I think he's going to have – I think he's going to go out and be super, super active in the first round, and I don't know that – I don't know that Font's got like uh, – finishing power beyond what Moraes has mostly been able to deal with. Of course, you know, things started not going his way in the Cejudo fight and it got ugly quickly. The Sanhagen fight, you know, similarly, but I think that I, I don't think that Font's on the level of those guys. And I think he's going to be more cautious um, and maybe a little bit more conservative. And I can just see Moraes like eating him up early and taking control uh, offensively. And just dictating the rest of the fight. I just think he's got a more varied game. It's just I don't know exactly where his head is right now. And I would have preferred that he take a little bit more time off before fighting um, a fairly high-ranked competitor following the Sanhagen knockout. Yeah, I actually went back and forth on this one time and again. Like every time I watched a bit of footage, I changed my mind. Obviously, Marais is explosive and technical, dangerous with literally every limb. But he's a shorter man in this matchup. He's kind of... Danger level goes down as the fight enters the second or the third round, etc. But he has shown like better cardio in the la- in his last couple of bouts than he has in the past. Um, he doesn't really finish if he doesn't finish in the first. And if he doesn't finish you in the first, then if you're elite, you'll probably finish him later. And if you're not elite, then it goes to a close decision, which is kind of where I think this fight will probably end up going. Uh, he recently switched to American Top Team after spending the majority of t- his uh, UFC career training in New Jersey. Uh, lost that fight to Corey Sanhagen by second round knockout. Basically got handled by Sanhagen. And Fond is also a tall guy like Sanhagen is, sharp boxer. Uh, he's got that stinging jab that he sets up, uh, that he uses to set up his powerful right hand and left hook trailed trains with the Calvin Cater in Boston. They call themselves the new England cartel, which I think is somewhat amusing. Um, he has had problems against shorter opponents who pressure in the past with his UFC losses coming to Rafael Sanzao, Pedro Munoz, and John Lineker. He seems to have trouble adjusting when an opponent kind of picks up success early, but he is coming off of a win over Sergio Pettis and Ricky Simone, who are also kind of shorter. Uh, so you could argue pressure yeah, fighters. They are. Neither one has the pop that, that Moraes has, though. I'm there with you, especially in that first round. And I think like Rob Font's inability to turn the tide is probably what's going to make a difference here, unless he's really improved on that. 
Um, both guys kind of struggle against high price pressure, right? But only one of them really pressures, and that's Rob, which is part of what makes me think like maybe he can do well here. Um, I, I'm going to go with uh, Marais. He's only lost to elite competition. But I do think it's a little bit of like a first round or almost bust for him. Like, again, it's likely to go to decision. I, I think Rob Font can be broken. So I'm picking Marais for that reason. I think Marais can do enough damage early to put Rob Font in that kind of survival mode, which should allow him to win by decision if he can't finish. But this one, again, I have yes. very little confidence in this pick. My next pick, Nick, is going to be in the... Uh, is the Carl Robertson versus Dolce Lukamambe Buda fight still on? No, last I heard. Great. Uh, Dolce is coming, actually finally coming down to 185 after a year off following his knockout loss to Magomedan Kalaev, who's like a serious prospect at 205. Robert, Robertson is coming off of a loss to uh, Marvin Vittori, who turned out to be a serious middleweight contender. He was kind of intimidated by Vittori leading into the bout, and I kind of feel like that was a factor in how quickly he lost. Obviously, Vittori's ground game is a big factor as well. Um, Robertson's a solid kickboxer who's developing his ground game under Hikardo Almeida. Dolce is not very technical and fairly short, but he is super athletic with serious power in his hands, man. If this guy lands clean, just about anyone can say goodnight. But I'm picking the better kickboxer in Robertson here. Um, if he's intimidated, though, because Dolce is an intimidating-looking character, then Dolce can definitely rack this win up, in my opinion. I've got Robertson as my pick. Yeah, I had Robertson also. Yep. Who've you got next, bud? Um, shit, let's just get wild. I think <laughs> I think Cheeto Vera is going to beat Jose Aldo. Oh yeah, tell me more. I I just think the accumulation of damage, the cuts down to 135, just the momentum, the beating he took against uh, pitcher Jan, um time and momentum, nothing is on Aldo's side right now. He's I mean, he's still good, but I mean I think that I just I believe that Vera can match him in skills right now, and that Vera's got a killer instinct and attitude that I think has kind of been sapped sapped from Aldo, and I I think I think Vera is probably going to hurt him, uh, maybe in the second or third round. I don't think he'll get a finish, but I think um, I I don't think this is one of those fights like Aldo against Jeremy Stevens or something where we see flashes of it, flashes of his brilliance against a lesser opponent. I think this fight marks the end of Jose Aldo. Really? Wow. Yeah. Um, Aldo will be the sharper boxer early and could conceivably take the first two rounds before Vera kind of comes on strong in the third. Part of the question is whether Aldo is mentally affected by that beating he took at the hands of Peter Yan a couple of months ago. He isn't as durable as he used to be, but very. I mean, I was me I was mentally affected by the beating he took. Yeah, the I, I do hear that, but he did look good overall in that fight. Outside of the moments where he was kind of taking for a bit, yeah, real, real damage. Um, Aldo wasn't as durable as he used to be, but Vera doesn't have serious power in his hands, right? I think Vera's kicks will be a factor, but I'm not sure how Jose will deal with them. Um, I can see him countering effectively with that right straight as Vera throws the kick. About two calf kicks is all it took for Sean O'Malley to wither onto his back, but Song Yudong took several calf kicks from Vera, and he took them well. Speaking of Song, I think that, to me, that is the most similar matchup to Aldo that Vera's kind of had recently. Yudong scored points because he was throwing hard, straight punches, and Vera mostly just kind of shells up in defense before continuing to move forward with his kicks. Song is young and explosive, but he is no Aldo standing, right? He may be more durable, but he's not as technical or experienced 
And that was a very, very close fight that Vera ended up losing. I could see Vera pressuring him against the fence and getting some control time um, on top of his kicks at a distance. But I'm edging toward Aldo very slightly because this is a big step up in competition for Vera. I know that uh, O'Malley is supposed to be like the big step up for Vera, but it wasn't, right? O'Malley like showed in that fight that he's clearly not on this level or, or even probably close to it. Uh, but I do hope that Vera wins for the sake of the division and kind of establishing a new contender. I think that would be pretty exciting. I just feel like Aldo's shown that he's got plenty in the gas tank lately. Maybe I just I think this is one of those things where psychologically Vera's conf- I think I think Vera's confidence is going to be through the roof. Yeah, and uh, he's um, so I think psychologically he's going to have a big edge entering the cage. But we'll see. I could I be wrong. That. That, that makes sense to me. I often am. My uh, my next pick, Nikolai, is going to be in the Sarge Eubanks Penny Kianzad matchup. It seems to me like Sarge, being the Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt, she needs takedowns to win fights, right? She doesn't tend to win fights in which she cannot land a takedown. And Kianzad has really good takedown defense. I think it's something like 92% in the UFC. She's going to be the taller girl, the better striker. Eubanks doesn't generally like. Like, she doesn't generally get stronger as the fight goes on, right? She weakens after that first round. Plus, she's a hot and cold fighter, right? She can come in really hot one day and get a big win over Avila and then come in a couple weeks later and lose a dominant decision to another prospect. I think that Pani Kianzada is going to win enough of this fight to pick up uh, pick up the win on the scorecards, especially considering Eubanks' fight against uh, Bechkoya. It's it's kind of a similar matchup, but Kianzada is a better fighter. So Stan picks the Persian... Kianzad. Yep. Cool. Um, I this I was going to be fair. I would have picked her even if she wasn't Persian. I know. I wasn't suggesting. <laughs> um, this is a this is a really tough one. Uh, it's a, it's, I think that's a very. I think that fight's very much a pick'em. Yeah. Uh, but I will. I'll go with Eubanks just to be uh, contrarian. Cool. Um, in your nature, my friend. <laughs> yeah. I really like Julian Roberts lately. I think she's durable and that she should be able. Uh, and I think that her fight IQ has gotten better. And I think this year she's shown that she can – I just think she's a savvier fighter. And I think Talia Santos is super, super strong. But I think Robertson can survive one round um, and then imp- impose her will and technique. She just has to be very careful not to get out not to get out-muscled and find herself in an untenable position. But I think that Robertson has the momentum here, uh, the higher fight IQ and the and all-around skill. I don't know if she'll get a sub, but she could. And I think I think she gets a decision. Yeah, I, I I ended up going back and forth with this one too. This is actually one that I'm very interested in. I think there's still some questions out there about Talia Santos. She's one and one in the UFC with her win making her look unbeatable against Molly McCann and her loss against Mara Barella Romero. She didn't look very good at all in that one. Um, and I again, I actually think this is the more intriguing match a matchup versus uh, Santos's matchup against De La Rosa. In my opinion, Jillian Robertson is the better version of Montana De La Rosa. She's a better wrestler, better grappler, and I think she's more gritty. Even though she doesn't have the best hands, uh, she does have good kicks. Robertson does. Santos is solid overall. Um, I, I think like her hands are pretty good, right? She's willing to exchange. She's the more physical fighter. She's got heavy kicks. And she also likes to get takedowns and work from top position. And I can see the danger in her getting uh, takedowns against Robertson, who seems to be comfortable on the floor no matter where they are. Um, If Jillian can solidify top position, she'll probably win this fight. But I'll favor Santos, who has a higher athletic ceiling, ceiling and kind of a physical style. 
Takedown defense is something a fighter can kind of make big strides in in a couple of years. And Santos lost to Barella in February of 2019, mostly because she got taken down a few times. So I expect that she will have enough to keep this on the feet and score valuable points. But again, this is this one is uh, this one's really hard to pick, and you can tell that this is a very competitive card. By the way, Nick, because we've disagreed on multiple fights so far, and it's rare that like ten ten or you know eight or ten fights into an event that we're disagreeing like half on half of these fights. Yeah, well, it could be that I've already lost a season, so I just don't. <laughs> I'm just like whatever. Is that the case? Thing? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. What's your next pick? Uh, my next pick is going to be. We've got three fights left. Is that correct, Nick? Yes, the three fights left are yeah. Flick versus Durden, Minas versus Christoph Tiagos, and Michel Pahea against Chaos Williams. I guess I'll tackle the Williams Pahea matchup. I'm going to make No, that's, I wanted that. to pick that. Did Fine. you want that what one? Do you, what do you have to say? What do you have to say? Um, you big jerk. Look, I mean, Chaos came up basically taking down mediocre opponents almost as if he didn't know he had like insane one in a million power in his hands. So he didn't look like much of a prospect um, in the footage that I was able to get of him pre-UFC, but he's 2-0 in the octagon. Um, and even though he was the underdog, I think in both fights, both wins came by knockout in around 30 seconds over Morono and Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. Both are like fairly successful UFC fighters, right? He looks he looked technical in the 30-second spurts in which we've seen him so far. He's got insane speed and serious power in his hands. Pereira, much like Williams, he looks like an action figure and fights like one too. He's super explosive, hard hitter with every limb. Cardio issues have kind of reared their head with him uh, in the past, but he has since looked good in his last couple of bouts when it comes to his uh, conditioning. He has one and two in his last three, but was dominating Diego Sanchez before landing an illegal knee that allowed Sanchez to walk away with a disqualification win. Actually, he did sign a uh, new UFC contract after his win over Emma Dive a few months ago, and I thought that uh, that fight was like even odds. I thought that was a great betting opportunity in favor of Pereira, and it worked out. Pereira might have more skill uh, and, and technique, but Chaos's power is a game changer. I hope we get to see Chaos go at least two hard rounds here so we can get a clearer picture of what he's capable of past that 30-second mark. How this fight will go depends on Pereira's chin and how defensively minded he will be early. I think his footwork can really help early on in this matchup. I'm going with Chaos, assuming that he'll be able to land a clean counter early on, but it's tough to be sure that Chaos isn't another Sokaju or Houston Alexander from back in the day, right? Guys who kind of come in, get a couple of clean knockouts over better competition, and then we find out they have no heart or no ground game. Hard to tell whether Chaos is one of those guys, but at least he's got 10 or so fights of experience pre-UFC, and he's got a pretty successful record. So I'm going to go with him, but it's a, it's a tough one. You're going with Chaos Williams? Yes, sir. Yeah, same. Yeah. Uh, you you think he's going to tag him, knock him out? Uh, yeah, okay. I think so. Okay, makes sense. Could be wrong, but I think I think uh, I think that's what we're going to say. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think the I footwork like, uh, of Pereira's is is what is going to be key here. It depends on how invested in it he is. I, I could just see Pereira coming in with a big shot and and just walking right into Chaos's right hand. Um, so for the next pick, this is really a it's a question of experience, right? We've got. We've got Cody Durden, who had that really good showing for one 10-8 round against uh, Chris Gutierrez in a fight that nobody expected him to be particularly um, competitive in. Uh, and then you've got, you know, and he's, you know, still fairly fresh in his career. He's only been a pro for, well, since 2016, but the vast majority of his fights are um, from 2019 on. Um, and then you've got Jimmy Flick, who's been kind of, around the block more 
um, turning pro much earlier and is clearly a, sub- a submissions guy. The question is, is Durden going to be able to hurt uh, or finish Flick before getting submitted, or can he resist the submissions uh, by virtue of his training with ATT Atlanta? You know, he's got some good, certainly some good coaching there, and I don't, you know, it's a it's a really, really tough call. Um, and most people, like on Tapology, seem to think that Flick's going to get this sub. I'm really torn. It says it says Cody Durden trains at Forza, but it's it's. Oh wait, hang on. He actually used no, to train uh, with the Lima brothers in Georgia, and I think he spent. He does trade. Yeah, I think he does still. Um, Jimmy Flick it says trains at Forza at, uh, Combat American Sports. American top team uh, headquarters for this one though. But Forza Forza Combat Sports in Oklahoma is that this, that's not the same Forza that that you're always talking about, right? Forza? Uh, are you talking about? I think you're talking about Fortis. Oh, Fortis. Jesus, yeah. that's where I was confused. That's who Joff Neal right. trains I, I read Forza. No, okay, so he's, he's at Forza. I don't know who else is there. I got to believe that there's a crew at ATT um, and, the Lima, and, and the Lima Brothers who's able to get him ready um, for Jimmy Flick's level of submission game. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. The world seems to be picking Flick. I'm going to go with Durden. Yeah, um, I... I ended up actually changing my pick. I originally picked Flick when these two guys were matched up. Uh, uh, I think it was something a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. Um, I think I might change my pick to Durden here. His stand-up is good enough, I think, to beat Flick there. And I think he should be the better wrestler. Flick is like a really good wrestler. He kind of sticks to you, drags you to the ground, and then scrabbles his way to a really impressive submission. He's just like super, super crafty on the ground. Um the concern is that Durden's losses have come when he fought under 135 pounds and he's making his 125 pound debut in the UFC, at least here. Uh, I like that he trained at ATT headquarters for this one with literally some of the best kind of 125 pounders on the planet, including uh, Kyoji Horiguchi. So I'm going to go with Durden, uh, you know, and the thought that he will successfully defend takedowns and keep it standing because Flick is really kind of amateur on the feet, but I would not at all be shocked if Flick catches him during a transition on the ground. Um, my final pick, and this is 14. That means the, the fight we haven't researched at all because we found out about it while we were recording literally minutes ago. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take Christos Chiagos to beat Carlton Minos. Minos is kind of from that Alaska scene, which is super, super low level. And a lot of those guys who do well there, they're a hit or miss, right? We have a guy uh, who just lost to, uh, Robert Whitaker, Nick, we just talked about him. Jared Cannonier. Jared Cannonier is a guy from that scene who kind of had to really evolve his game and is looking pretty solid now. Minos, um, who looked good leading up to his UFC debut, just didn't have the dynamism to compete with his opponent, uh, who was a fellow UFC debuting fighter, a good fighter who I uh, whose name uh, escapes me right now. Chiagos is dynamic, if nothing else. And I know that he's had cardio issues against pressure fighters in the past, but I don't think Carlton Minos is that pressure fighter. Chiagos should be stronger, more experienced, more explosive. And more importantly, I'm looking at his Instagram, and it seems like he's in good shape, considering he hasn't been fight, uh, training for a fight at all whatsoever. There are just some, like, some selfies of him with serious abs, and I know he's always kind of looking in shape, but it leads me to believe that he has been doing some training. I'm seeing some footage of him hitting mitts. I'm seeing uh, a picture of him after a run from just a couple of weeks ago. So presumably he has been keeping in shape i'm going to pick chiagos who has the ufc experience and is the more athletic man here but it's hard to gauge uh how conditioned he is for this one yeah i'm i guess i'm with you i don't really have anything to say about this <laughs> so you're picking tiagos yeah I'm, I'm picking uh chiagos by a close margin but again it's 
Nick, it is so hard to be confident in like probably eight or nine of these 14 fights. So hard. I would say even like 10 of these 14 fights are hard to be confident in. This is a super competitive uh, card. And like for that reason, I might be a little bit more timid on the betting than I normally am, Nikolai. But obviously, I'm going to get to that in the next uh, segment. How far, how far up are you? What are you up now this year? Um, I we're up like over 300%, but I am coming off of uh, like, I think I lost 40 bucks or something last week. Which fight are you most looking forward to? Uh, fights I'm most looking forward to. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I mean, obviously Williams versus Pahea, cause what the hell is going to happen? Yes. Uh, Maurice over font cause we're, t- and, and Vera over Aldo, because we're, we're talking about, um, you know, four top 10 fighters yep. at bantamweight. Um, so, I mean, that's the stuff I want to watch Ch- Chikui fight. Um, I'm really excited about that. Yes, and it's. I mean, there's like there's. I'm I'm interested in, in I'm interested in most of these fights. The Pettis, the Pettis fight and the Aldo fight could can be a little might be a little sad. Like we don't know. It could, it, they could they could leave us both with a Tony Ferguson like feeling. Yeah. Um, Although with Pettis, I feel so like we'll we've see. we've been there so many times that that wouldn't like it wouldn't not against this level not against this level that's true but i do like alex morona for the record like i I just like like i was a little disappointed to hear him talk about how he's not buying for a title i never thought he could win one but just the fact that he's not even aiming there maybe it's a more healthy mindset if you don't really have that potential i don't know but uh i do like the guy i think he's like a scrappy like strong-willed guy who's gonna persevere despite like athletic disparity and that's exactly what he's gonna have to do in this matchup to pick up a win i'm fascinated by the thompson neil matchup i think that if Neil can come through here, like we're looking at something real special, especially if he can catch Thompson, right? Thompson has struggled against guys that, oh, yeah. that again, that are that are not giving him a lot to counter. And Joff Neal, especially training a Fortis MMA, I'm hoping he'll be smart enough not to be too aggressive here. The thing is that he, if he is super aggressive, I think he's faster than Thompson, especially at this point. So super, super interested in that. And obviously Vera Aldo, I think uh, it's basically Aldo's hands and I guess technique proficiency versus Vera's will just like relentless output and kicks and and that one uh, I'll be fascinated by I think like they ordered this card well with the top four fights being the ones that I'm probably most looking forward to with uh, Marlon Marais Rob Font Chaos Williams Pereira and the two fights that I just mentioned yeah I mean if Joff Neal um if he wins if he wins this fight uh there's all sorts of interesting options um for him next you yeah, know, really, like really the, I mean, he could he could go right up to the winner of Masvidal Covington when that gets booked. Um, yeah, unless could. that unless the winner of that fight's getting a title shot. Although Usman destroyed both of those guys, so um, yeah, I tend to think. But who knows? Everything everything could thing. change when Usman when Usman fights Gilbert Burns. But uh, there are some exciting fights. I mean, I never I never knew. I'm just looking at the welterweight rankings now. Kiesa doesn't have a fight. Maya doesn't have a fight. Uh, Magni doesn't have a fight. Luke, he him against Luke. We haven't seen him against Luke yet, right? That would be amazing. Uh, no, we haven't. Um, but but I feel like Luke, if he lost to Thompson as badly as he did, and he picks up this win, I, I think that's a big step back for uh, Neil. Yeah, well, Neil's ranked. Neil's ranked really is ranked behind. You know, it depends. It uh, he listen. He would certainly currently. I mean, looking at the. MMA world rankings versus the UFC ones, which are heavily editorial, you know, there's editorial right. things driving those. Right. Neil's currently ranked 17th, um, you know, behind a lot of UFC fighters, including Luke, Maya, Magni, Chiesa. And then you get Thompson up at nine. So let's say he beats Thompson and, and Pettis, who's currently eight, loses. Uh, 
I think Thompson's at number six, actually. No, I'm looking in the. I'm looking at rankingmma.com, not UFC. Oh, I thought you were looking at Topology. Got it. No. Oh no, no, I'm not looking at Topology either. Yeah, uh, uh, here's the thing. Thompson would put him certainly safely within that top ten. And, yeah, I just feel like yeah. the, the, a guy that Thompson just kind of ran over recently would be a step back. Yeah, I, th- I think, like, if I was Joff Neal, if you just beat Thompson, you're ready for top five at welterweight. I'd be calling for, like, a fight with somebody like uh, Masvidal. Masvidal would not take that fight. Don't get me wrong. But I'd be calling for that level of guy. Maybe, I don't know if he's ballsy enough to call out Chimaev. Like, you know, Joff Neal hasn't shown, like, that he's uh, that ballsy with the callouts and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if he would do that, but that might be a good matchup for him too. He's going to be, he's going to be uh, overall, I think faster than Chimaev. That would be fascinating. Uh, a lot of potential I yeah. think, for the winner of this bout. And Steven Thompson acts as like the gatekeeper to the very stars. Once again, here. Yeah. Good stuff. Can't wait. Last card of uh last card of the year. And then we've got a, a break. I think four week break, Nick, January 16th is the next card. We will have uh, celebrated my birthday before that next card, Nick. And that's, that's uh, a month away. It's it's interesting how like we're getting this break, and I'm kind of looking forward to maybe not doing as much research. But I do think we should still uh, meet up once a week and and talk about MMA news. Maybe we can rewatch a couple of uh, prior fights that were very close and kind of see how we score them on a, a second watch. Also, we can get into like I don't know some version of our own rankings of the MMA awards to uh, maybe some unusual sorts of awards, not the basic like fighter of the year, etc. Uh, we have some potential for the next four weeks, buddy, but I still think it'll take so much less research than we put in uh, for these cards. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, buddy. Good one in the books. Looking forward to connecting next week. You have yourself a wonderful weekend, bud, and uh, I hope you're enjoying that snow. We've got a lot of snow. We've got, a, got about a foot and change of snow up in the Northeast right now. I'm sure I will live in continued mediocrity. I will talk to you later. <laughs> talk to you soon, bud. Oh, for all of our listeners, I haven't really promoted this yet. Uh, buy my book, Off the Back of a Truck, Contraband for the Sopranos Fan. Uh, you can go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T uh, dot L-Y slash Sopranos book, and it'll take you to all the different ways to buy it. Nick, I'm very much looking forward to that. I, I actually have the book. I haven't started reading it because I want to start reading it when I st- uh, restart the Sopranos series. Very much looking forward to it. And I have read excerpts you have provided me over the months. And Nick, uh, really, really good stuff. Super informative as to like different aspects of the show, different episodes that kind of focus on different, whether it be the you know the waste disposal industry or Italian culture, or Jewish culture in the in the you know episode with the um, w- with the Hasidic Jews who were kind of dealing with the mob. Very much excited to get into this book and so far really good reviews from what i've read buddy uh, thanks i'm excited although i will say that your wife did text me and let me know that you've mostly just been using your copy to draw dicks everywhere so you you may think you can fool me <laughs> Damn it, Lord. i'm kidding i don't know any, i don't know anything about you drawing dicks. <laughs> no I, I don't tend to scribble with dicks but but something along those lines it's not far off i suppose Nikolai, good one in the books. Uh, looking forward to getting into your book. Looking forward to this weekend's card and, and of course, connecting next week. Have a great weekend, buddy. Take care. Back on the podcast. Last week, we actually didn't have a loss of 40 something dollars. Like I said in the last segment, it was only $27 in losses. 
which brings our bankroll down to $927, up for 300 bucks. That was our initial investment. And for this one, I don't really see a whole lot of betting opportunities, to be honest, since we recorded the last segment. A couple more fights pulled out, so it's only a 12-fight fight card. As of now, I did see some more opportunities than are available now, but I'm really only going to recommend one parlay and then one kind of prop bet as a hedge for that parlay. Antonio Arroyo and Penny Kianzada, plus 298 combined odds, $34 to win 101. They are facing Darren Wynn and Sarge Eubanks, respectively. I think Sarge Eubanks can pick up a decision here as well if she can get her takedown game going. But I think Kianzada will have the takedown defense. Her takedown defense is in the 90 percentile range, and her stand-up is better. And I think she has a reach and height advantage over Eubanks. So I like Kianzada's chances in this matchup. And Arroyo is going to be the much bigger man over Darren Wynn. But if Darren Wynn does win, it's going to be by decision. So I'm going to recommend a prop bet of Darren Wynn by decision, plus 260 odds, $13 to win 34. So basically, if Wynn does pick up that victory over Arroyo, I'm going to end up evening out. And if Arroyo and Kianzad both come through, then I will have a profit of about $85. That will do it for the betting segment this week, guys. And I know we have several weeks off as far as Fight Night cards, but we will be coming back discussing MMA news, maybe picking some interesting subjects, and probably an award show toward the end of the year. Thank you all for the listen and the support. And do pick up Nick's book. I am super excited to dive into it. I'm probably going to start rewatching Sopranos in January, and I cannot wait to read his book alongside it. It's kind of a guide uh, with a lot of background information. I'm super excited about it. Thank you all for the listen, and we'll speak to you guys next week.